0: I am truly excited about that potential for your audience and for anyone in the United States to be able to create generational wealth much earlier in their career versus having to wait till you reach such a high bar.
1: I'm Tamina, and I'm extending a heartfelt invitation to you as we join forces in reclaiming economic power for women in a world that is often structured against us. We'll dive into the minds of accomplished female leaders, investors, and entrepreneurs to equip you with the confidence and knowledge to build wealth for yourself and other women. So buckle up, get ready to learn, and be inspired to take action. Hello and welcome back, everyone. I am so excited for you all to listen to this week's episode Not only because our guest is so fabulous, but also because the format of this particular episode will be just a little different from previous ones because we just have so much ground to cover. And because of that, I will be doing a lot less talking than usual. And this is basically going to be a masterclass on startup investing. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to the one and only Bridget L. Smith. Bridget is the founder and CEO of Founder Playbook, a micro accelerator for founders where she helps women BIPOC and LGBTQIA founders become investor ready get access to capital, and scale their business. Her popular Investing with Confidence workshops provide guidance and tactical education for women interested in investing in pre seed to Series C startups. In June of 2023, she expanded her wings and launched Investing with Confidence Angels, targeting 1,000 accredited women in her network. Together, the group leverages their collective financial and social capital to invest in and support startups and VC funds led by BIPOC, women or LGBTQIA founders. Bridget began investing in startup assets in 2021. Her current portfolio includes hedge funds, private equity funds, VC funds, SPVs, solo investments and multiple alternative assets. And when Bridget is not creating impact and generational wealth through investing, she serves as chair of the Berkeley Skydeck DEI committee and is serving on several special committees at Golden Seats, The Fourth Floor, Women in BC, and 5050 Women on Boards. She's also board advisor for multiple innovative startups and provides assistance to founders in various accelerator and incubator programs. Prior to navigating the startup ecosystem, Bridget worked in tech for 25 years, starting as a tech writer and working up to the C-suite. Then she landed in a senior leadership role at Google and later retired. Prior to joining Corporate America, Bridget shined in journalism. Her journalism career includes working as a print reporter, news reporter, on-air commentator, talk show host, and the creator and executive producer of an independent television talk show. Today she's earned over a hundred awards and has been featured on the cover of the inaugural edition of Who's Who in Black Milwaukee and the Small Business Times magazine. Her educational background includes UW Milwaukee School of Engineering, the Yale School of Management, Harvard Business School, and UC Berkeley School of Law. On this episode, Bridget will walk us through what each and every one of us can do to become a more confident startup investor. What a resume, Bridget. (laughs) Welcome to Give Her Dollars. It's so good to have you. Thank you. I'm really,
0: really excited to have this conversation today. And I want to applaud you for just being a catalyst in this space to help uh, young women understand what it takes to be an investor and to break down all the barriers and the myths that people think and really just help them become more affluent and comfortable in this space. So I applaud you for this conversation and for the work that you're doing as well.
1: Oh, thank you, Bridget. That really means a lot. And that's exactly the type of impact I want to have. So um, thank you for echoing that. And um, yeah, so excited for our audience members to absorb all of your knowledge. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> Bridget, before we dive into all the nitty gritty details, because again, we have a lot of ground to cover today, I would love for you to briefly share how you got so passionate about the startup investing space and educating people around all of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting story is prior to 2021, I had never invested in startups. I had only invested in real estate, my 401k through my previous employers and my IRAs, right? Individual retirement accounts. and And so that's it. I didn't know anything about startups, but then I moved to California, joined the startup what feels like a planet of startups. There's so many startups everywhere you turn. And so my environment changed and therefore I was exposed to something new and different. And so as people were talking about startups and talking about unicorns, I didn't know what that meant. They were talking about, you know, people were leaving tech, the tech industry, Google or meta or Amazon, all these big companies to start startups or to invest in startups. So I just became curious. And so I started to ask questions about, well, and do research my, for my own self. What I learned is that there's so much information out there that it becomes overwhelming. It becomes almost paralyzing because you don't know where to go and who to ask questions and where to find answers. And so I asked, I started to poke around and I found people in my inner circle and in the various organizations where I'm a member, there were communities of investors and communities of women looking to learn more. And what I learned is that they were learning as well. So I asked questions, I tried to find information. I, I bumped into a lot of complex answers and I decided to just dig in. So I watched YouTube videos. I bought books, went to a lot of webinars, joined angel workshops, and learned that this is a very complex space. But then I started to distill it down to what do I really need to know? And how do I really get started? And so that's where the rubber met the road for me, which was, okay, all of this stuff is out here, but what do I really need to do as my next step? And it turns out it was really about, it boils down to finding startups and finding deal flow, which I'm sure we'll get into, and then understanding what to look for within those deal opportunities and how to evaluate those deal opportunities, and the how do I reduce my risk so that I don't lose my money, which is a common Comment that you hear when you're in this startup um, uh, ecosystem is that this is a high risk asset class and be prepared to lose your money. Well, if you hear that, anybody within their right mind would run away. But at the same time, this was a space I wanted to be in and I wanted to learn more. So I decided not to run, but to lean in and run towards. So that's what I did. So that's really how I got started. And prior to just wanting to quote unquote invest, I was already doing the work of coaching leaders, coaching entrepreneurs and founders as just something I did on the side. I was always answering questions, giving them direction, making connections. So I was doing it um, informally before I really knew that this was something that I could do uh, as a business opportunity. So I was already in the space, already doing the, the coaching and the advising type work, but never really investing. And then when I started to invest, I had to learn from zero how to navigate this this space and uh, what to look for, how to do due diligence, et cetera, et cetera. Now I've got my rhythm. So I've gone from knowing nothing and having zero investments in the startup space to where I am today, where my portfolio is now literally 150 startups and counting that I've personally invested in.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think some of the themes we can already pick out here are curiosity, community, and just having a growth mindset and just being willing to learn and absorb knowledge, which this is what what this platform and my podcast is all about. We're already talking about this earlier, but as you know, most of our listeners are young women in their 20s and early 30s, which means that many of them don't qualify as accredited investors just yet. Some of them maybe, but the majority won't. Providing education and resources early on on their personal journey is something that I'm really passionate about because I want them to start generating wealth quicker so they can become startup investors as early as possible. Right. Mm-hmm. And Obviously, legislation varies across different countries. So what might be applicable here in the United States, where both of us are based, might not be applicable in a European country, for example. But Bridget, would love for you to briefly clarify what an accredited investor in the United States is and why it's important for us to mention that in this context specifically.
0: Mm -hmm. I'll definitely provide the definition. But let me also say there is consideration and, and there is a strong potential within the U.S., For the definition that's provided by the Security Exchange Commission, commission, the SEC, they're the ones who define what an accredited investor is or isn't. And so there is a push to widen that funnel to allow more people to become accredited investors. And if they open up that spigot and they say, instead of the current criteria, which is that your income be, individual income be at least 200 Thousand per year income, or your household with your spouse, a uh, combined income of 300000 per year uh, over the last two years, or you have liquid assets, not including your primary residence, you have liquid assets of a million dollars or more to be an individual accredited investor. And then they have other categories as well. So uh, for groups, for family, for etc um larger institutions accreditation for them but as an individual that is the definition However, as I mentioned, there is a potential, a very real potential, that the SEC could change their requirements and loosen their requirements and allow people to, quote unquote, take a accreditation test or some kind of requirement that doesn't relate to your income that will allow you to invest in this particular asset class. So should that happen? that would be a massive opportunity for individuals who are able to pass whatever that requirement looks like from the SEC to become investors in startups. So I am truly excited about that potential for your audience and for anyone in the United States to be able to create generational wealth much earlier in their career versus having to wait till you reach such a high bar.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you pointed it out because if that regulation were to actually change that would, as you pointed out, unlock opportunity for historically overlooked members of our society to become active in this space, specifically younger people, but also people who might not necessarily be able to cross that threshold. But there is that weird assumption that people make when you make a lot of money that automatically correlates with being able to take care of your personal finances in a very, you know, smart and, and, and sound manner, but that's not not necessarily the case always, right? You might be able to on, only make, let's say hundred K a year, but you're able to, you know, manage your finances in a way that allow you to, save or invest like 50% of your gross un- income versus someone else who might be earning half a million dollars is is spending all of that and might be in debt. So that that income threshold it's, is not necessarily a good indicator for how good you are at actually managing your personal finances. Right. It, it locks,
0: it basically it locks people out. If I didn't meet that criteria, I would not be able to invest in this asset class, period. No matter how smart I am, no matter how you know, advanced. I might be in my career, etc. If I didn't meet that criteria, I just wouldn't. I would be that door would be closed to me, and I could. I would have to choose the the other asset classes that I mentioned earlier as my primary source to build wealth for me and my family, um, and generational wealth for my you know my extended family. I'm keeping a close eye on that, as many people are in this ecosystem. As hopefully, your listeners will. We'll, you know, do some research and find and just kind of keep up with that because it will really, really unlock potential to invest early, even with a small amount. I can't wait to tell you about my first investment and then how I got to 150 startups. But but it will really this is not a closed environment where it's only for the rich or only for people with certain wealth. Even if you if you do meet the current uh, criteria for an accredited investor, you can start with as little as twenty five hundred dollars investing in startups, and then of course the the sky's the limit if you cho- if you have those resources to invest more. So even if you are accredited, you still can start at a very low dollar amount into startups that you feel have potential and that meet your certain criteria that you have and that you should look for. The opportunity is an amazing opportunity. So I really want to encourage the folks listening today, the folks watching today, is to pay attention to what we're about to talk about in terms of thesis and deal flow and how to learn about this ecosystem so that you become more comfortable because if, I had started, oh, if I had started when I was in my 20s, where would I be today? I'm 54 today. Where would I be if I had started 34 years ago? I I can't even, my mind would, I can't even imagine it really. 34 years ago, I had no idea that this asset class was even available to me. But so anyway, it's something that we should all be excited about and want to learn more about because it is a game changer for sure. Game changer for sure.
1: Absolutely. And on that note, let's dive right in. I I want our audience members to learn as much as possible today. So let's talk about the fundamentals of startup investing, Bridget. Startup Mm -hmm. life cycles, funding stages, different funding instruments that are out there. What do people who are completely new to the space have to know?
0: Yeah. So the first thing is, what is a startup? So again, when I came to Silicon Valley, I never heard the word startup, really. I heard entrepreneur all the time. That was more um, in my wheelhouse of where the conversations I was a part of. But a startup is a company, a young company that has a business model that supports in- innovation. So it's a disruptive business idea. And so there's there are common companies that we probably engage with every single day that started as a startup, zero employees, zero revenue, just a great idea. And it was going to you know, be different and new to the marketplace, right? Companies like Google, companies like Uber, companies like Amazon, companies like Dropbox, Microsoft, Facebook, you name it. There's so many companies that we use probably in our everyday lives, even products in your kitchen. I named a whole bunch of tech companies, but there's products in your kitchen. There's products that you put in your car. There's products that you probably use um, within your um, household, common things that you use every single day that started with a person with an idea who wanted to introduce a product to the to the to the marketplace, and that product uh, actually was scalable and generated revenue and uh, began to grow over time. And so, but it started with an idea with a person, and then something that would disrupt the marketplace, which would be innovative. So that's the definition of a startup. So that's where you should think about. The second part is what are the stages. So the basics are a pre seed, seed. And then it goes up from there. So series A, series B, etc. cetera. And so when you're thinking about investing in startups, you will more than likely be introduced to startups that are in the pre-seed category or the seed category. In the pre-seed category, that is a company that has a business concept and they're working to um, identify their product market fit. So they have a product, but is there a need for it in the marketplace and and are people willing to pay for that product or service? And usually they're looking in the pre-seed stage, their pre product So they don't have a product developed yet. It's an idea and they're pre-revenue. So they don't have revenue generated yet. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but most of the time they may not. And they're looking to raise funds in order to build their company, this new company that they're starting called a startup, Startup ABC. And so they usually go to their friends and family or they do crowdfunding. I highly recommend crowdfunding for startup Founders. Founder is the person uh, who is the owner of the company, or the person who is building the idea. They came up with the concept, etc. So that's what they call a founder in the startup space. In most places, they call them entrepreneur, but uh, startups call them founders. So the founder may ask their friends and family, or many. In many cases, if you're in your 20s and 30s, a lot of startups are started by people of all different ages. You don't have to be a specific age to even come up with a business idea, but if you're um, a younger um, founder, you may not have, or a specific demographic of a founder, say people of color or disadvantaged individuals, you may not have friends and family who can invest in your idea. So many people go to crowdfunding. So that is an excellent way to raise capital for your business idea. So that's pre-seed. Seed is the next stage. So seed is usually the stage where There is a minimal viable product or a prototype. So prototype just means that they don't have an actual product that they can market. They may have one version of it that they use, and they use that one version to showcase it to others to show this is what they're thinking. Or if it's an app that they're thinking about building, they might have pictures of that Screen, they call them wireframes, so pictures of what that app might look like if it were to be developed. So they either have a prototype, which I just described, or they have a minimal viable product, MVP. And MVP is a product that is in the early stages uh, of development, but they actually have a real product that you can touch and feel, and you can use it. It's functional, and they can use that as their early version of their of their product. So they, So they now have a product of some type. You know they're getting closer, and they also have probably more funding at this point as well because they built their product, so they probably have fun- have fundings at some point, and they are scaling. They're beginning to get more traction, get more users, get more customers, get more feedback, understand how to refine their distribution channels, etc. And they're still raising capital in the seed stage. You'll see more of those founders going to ask investors like myself, either an angel investor or a venture capital investor to invest in their business at this point. Um, I'm gonna talk you through the differences of of those categories um, shortly, but but that is basically the framework for pre-seed and seed. And then there's other more advanced startup categories um, that are series A, series B, series C. To the general public, if you're using a product, you don't have a clue what stage the company is in nor do you even care but if you're an investor it matters because where they are in the life cycle of building their company determines how far along they are in terms of their potential to exit and exit is the a successful exit which really just means the company has been purchased sold acquired by a bigger company or a company that says we love what you built and we like to buy it and then we'll give you a check for it mr or mrs founder and the investors people like myself who invested in that company then we receive our uh, return on investment at the point of a successful exit so that is the framework that the beginning stages of a framework for how a startup starts and how they get funding. And, and then the life cycle of the ultimate goal for any investor and hopefully the goal for a founder would be a successful exit. I've talked to founders who were looking to raise capital. They contacted me as an investor. And I always ask the question about what are you thinking in terms of exit? And usually a a fast exit is, is, outstanding, fast, meaning three years from the point of the company starting. So three, five, seven, 10 years, the odd numbers, three, five, seven, ten. 10. So five to 10 is usually the average, right? For a startup to have a successful exit between year five and year 10. And so I was talking to a founder in particular who I asked the question about exit and her answer blew me away. She said, I don't, I don't plan to sell my company. I created this company for my grandchildren. I want to leave something, a legacy to my grandchildren. And I pause it with all due respect. You're, you're not looking for an investor. If you're looking to keep your company within your family, you know, for, for your life and for generations to come An investor invests so they can create an impact and so that they can generate revenue or income for themselves right a return on investment and so i'm unable to invest in your company if you never plan to exit because that's the point where i can actually make money as an investor so just to give you a little flavor of of the life cycle and the expectations from an investor perspective versus a founder or entrepreneur perspective
1: Okay. So Bridget, we just talked about the different funding stages. Now would love to talk a little bit more about what an angel investor actually is. And on that note, we can probably also talk a little bit about investor personas and an investor thesis. That's something that I particularly mm-hmm. loved when I attended one of your fantastic workshops a couple of weeks ago, just mm-hmm. learning how you personally think about creating your own investor mm-hmm. persona. So mm-hmm. would love for you to share with our audience what an angel investor is, what an investor thesis is, and why it is important to have one, and also mm-hmm. what your investor thesis looks like.
0: Absolutely. So I found it interesting, again... The definition of angel investor is pretty straightforward. It's an individual who is an accredited person through the SEC definition that I mentioned earlier, a person uh, who has a certain income level or liquid assets. And then there is the category of venture capitalist And a venture capitalist is kind of the next stage above, which is an individual who's still accredited, but they are investing more so in venture funds. So funds that are allocated for multiple startups who participate in a fund. So a venture capitalist is like a lot of people Pull their money into a fund. And then there is another entity called a general partner um, of that fund who then um, allocates that money in the fund to multiple startups according to um, the fund's focus. So I'm both an angel investor and a venture capitalist. So as an angel investor, I invest in a range of startups. I invest in pre-seed, so that's idea stage, pre-product, pre-revenue. And I invest in seed stage, so they have a product, they have traction, they're monetizing it to some degree and they're gaining some market share. And and then there's series A, all the way uh, to the point where the company goes public. So I invest in all stages of startups as an investor. When I started though, I did not have a thesis, which was not a good idea, but I didn't know what a thesis was. And it sounded very academic, to be honest with you. I'm like, I'm done with school. Why do I need a thesis? But I learned that a thesis is all about strategy and focus. So let's just say you are going to the grocery store and you have $200 and you don't have a grocery list. You're just going to, oh, you're going to stop on your way home from work. You're going to go and pick up a few things that you can remember. And then you come home and then forget what you, you forget so many things because you didn't have a list. Well, um, a thesis is literally a list. It's, it's your focus If I have $200, how am I going to use that $200 to say invest in something? $200 in a a startup is, is not even a realistic number, but let's just keep it simple, $200. So if I had $200 and I wanted to invest, but I had no idea what I want to invest in, I'll probably just attach it to any startup that comes my way that I think sounds good, looks good. Let's give it a shot. And that's so random. And it's also the wrong way to invest in anything whether it's a startup and it's also, in my opinion, the wrong way to go grocery shopping. You should also always have a list. So, but that's just me. A thesis is your focus and your strategy as an investor. And so what I do is I created my own thesis based on these, this framework that I'm about to share with you. I highly, highly recommend this framework to get you started and it will help you tremendously. Again, you can invest with very little money if you're an accredited investor, as low as $2,500. So you don't have to invest big chunks of money to help these startups to grow. And for you as an investor, hopefully get a return on investment when they exit in three, five, seven, ten 10 years from today. So here's how to create your thesis. So the first thing you do is on a piece of paper, you write down three circles. You write down your hobbies and interests. In another circle, you write down social impact. So what do you care about? Do you care about human trafficking? Do you care about mental health, homelessness, etc.? Social impact. Do you volunteer at the local food pantry? Social impact, right? The third circle is your career expertise area. So whatever that might be for you at this stage in your life, write down the categories or the kinds of businesses that you've worked at. So if you worked in retail, write down retail. If you worked in fast food, that's a restaurant, right? Write down restaurant. So write those three circles down in each of those circles, you should have a list of things. So in my circle for hobbies and interests, I wrote down, I love to save money. I love to try to cook. I'm not a good cook, but I try to cook. I love beauty. So getting dressed up and trying different beauty brands. I love fashion, et cetera, et cetera. So once you have those three circles, then the next thing you do to create your thesis is you layer on top of those things that you wrote inside the circles, how does that translate to the startup in the, in the community of, of investing? So for me, saving translate, it's about money. So startups related to money are called fintech, financial tech startups related to cooking. I mentioned I love to try and cook. I'm a sous chef with my husband. He's the cook in the house. So when he's cooking, I help. And so anything related to fresh food and non-toxic chemicals and food, all these food-related conversations, I'm really interested in learning about. So cooking. So in the startup space, that translates to what? Food tech agricultural tech. So in your circles, when you wrote down whatever you wrote down, you may have wrote down yoga is a hobby. You may have written down walking your dog is a hobby. Whatever your hobbies are, I'm happy to support you and help you figure out how does that translate to tech. But let me just give you some examples. If you wrote down yoga, yoga is health and wellness. So you would be more interested naturally in health and wellness because you already are interested in yoga. If you wrote down, you love to walk your dog, you love to, you love animals, then you're probably interested in pet companies, right? So pet I would call them pet tech. A lot of things are connected to the tech space these days, so just call it pet tech. Companies that, startups that are related to animals and pet parents, etc. Same thing in the social impact. If you're interested in um, domestic violence, like that, that's your thing. You really want to, you know, you're part of a prevention efforts in your community. Those things are also connected there are uh, startup companies that also focus on those categories as well the bottom line is three three circles are going to help you focus on what you should be looking for when startups come your way right and so what you do with that information is you then create your persona right which is the mina just mentioned that you create your persona so that's one layer of knowing what you're building your thesis So the next layer is once you understand the stages, remember I talked about pre-seed and seed and then further advanced companies become series A, series B, et cetera. Think about the stage of company that you're comfortable investing in right? So we're going to assume that $200, you're going to put it someplace. So where are you going to put it? Are you going to put it in a pre-seed company that is an idea, pre-product, pre-revenue or a seed stage company that has a product or prototype and they're monetizing, they're getting traction. So what's your comfort zone? So that's part of your persona. The other is what's industries or sectors. So remember those three circles we just created? Now you're going to look at those Um, circles and how you translated your hobbies, such as yoga to healthcare and um, health and wellness, now you put in your persona matrix that you're interested in companies that you're more interested in companies that are in the healthcare space and the wellness space and maybe the pet care space or the pet space period, right? And if you say you're in your career circle, you put retail, you put restaurant, because you have some degree of experience in those spaces, you do not have to be an expert, but. because you have some degree of experience, you put that into your persona profile as well, because you have a little bit of experience and you know a little bit about those industries. So therefore that you can you can say that you, you'd be interested in companies who are also in those spaces. Now, let's say a company, you built your profile and there are a few, few more pieces to your profile. How much are you comfortable investing in terms of dollar amount, your minimum and your maximum? So your minimum might be 2,500 and your maximum may be 50K for an individual investment, right? So let's just pause there. So let's just say that is your profile. Now, if a company approaches you and say you're accredited, a company approaches you and they are in the quantum computing category or the software enterprise category, if that company doesn't fit your profile in the circles that you created, you should either one say, no, thanks. It's not something I'm interested in. Or if you're curious, of course, you can take some time to assess the startup and have a conversation, but more than likely, you're probably going to take a pass. Why? It's not in your wheelhouse. It's not something you're even interested in, right? Quantum computing for me is so far outside of my wheelhouse. I just, I can't, I don't even get it. I wouldn't say never, but the chances of me investing in that particular Um, Sector is very low because it doesn't fit my profile. So once you do the three circles, once you assess your profile and your persona the way I've just described it, those fundamentals that I just mentioned, put that on paper, then you can write down your thesis. And your thesis, what is your strategy and your focus? So my, my thesis, very simple, is I invest in industry agnostic precede to Series C startups founded by underrepresented founders who are women, BIPOC, or LGBTQIA. That is my thesis. Let me break it down in terms of how to structure your thesis. I'm gonna say it again, but this time I'm gonna frame it out for you because I know this is you're not looking at my screen and you can't see what I'm looking at, but this is my thesis and this is how you structure your thesis. I invest in The the kind of industry goes in parentheses. So it could be healthcare, it could be beauty, it could be consumer packaged goods, et cetera, or it could be industry agnostic like me even though I have preferences of various categories, according to my three circles, I'm still interested in in opportunities outside of those circles. I will entertain those conversations. So rather than have 15 different industries in my thesis, I put industry agnostic because I have such a broad range of industries that I'm interested in. So I invest in the industry. The next parenthesis is the stage. So my stages are pre-seed to series C. Your stage might be pre-seed and C, or it could be pre-seed to something else. And then the type of founder, right? So, so the, the profile of the founder for me is startups founded by, and then in parentheses, underrepresented founders who are women, BIPOC, or LGBTQ. So you can further add to your thesis geography, such as based in the United States or Africa or Asia. So geography, you can further add other uh, differentiators as well to further refine. So you don't want to have a one-page document. You want to have a sentence and so in your sentence will evolve over time. The very first thesis that I ever wrote when I figured out I needed a thesis was I invest in women. That's way too broad. So you need to funnel, you need to focus a little bit more and say, Well, is that all women? Is is that all industries? Is that all stages, Bridget? Come on. And so then I said, Okay, wait a minute. I invest in black women. And I thought that was an improvement. Well, it wasn't. It's still too broad. And so all kinds of um, startups were coming to me asking for support and help, but I realized I was still being too narrow because I don't just in, invest in women and I don't just inv- invest in black women. I invest in a, a certain industries, certain stages, and a broader swath of underrepresented founders. And so that's how I came up with my thesis. So, everybody has a thesis who's a, a savvy investor. So, even right now, as you're listening and watching, Write down, if you had $200 to invest in a startup that you're really excited about and you wanted to help, you know, move forward and help them, you know, their company to to grow and scale, what type of company would you invest in? if you had $200, what type of company would you invest in? And so that's the thesis that will help you frame that out. The other thing I wanted to share is after you create your thesis, I know most of you listening and watching probably are on LinkedIn. I know I am. I'm very, very active on LinkedIn. You have a brand, whether you're on LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram, Instagram, Facebook, I don't know what they call Facebook these days, except Facebook. I think people call it the book, whatever. If you're on whatever social platform you're on, you have a brand. And if you become, decide to invest, your brand has now expanded to be an investor. So maybe you're a retail consultant, you're a mom, you're a sister, you know, you, you community servant, etc. But you're also now an investor once you decide to join that space. And, and after you're up, of course, accredited. So how do you leverage your thesis to then get, um, opportunities to invest that $200. And I'm just using $200 as a metaphor for whatever the amount is that you would choose to invest if you did. But $200 is the metaphor. So if you were to take that $200, how do you then tell people that you're an investor and that you want to invest and you want to help companies grow and you're looking to create impact and you're looking to create generational wealth wealth for you and your family or your future family? So that's where branding comes in. There's a number of ways to leverage and tell people that you're an investor investor now. And believe me, there are 20 and 30 year olds who are investors. You can be an investor at any age and you can be a founder at any age. So basically you put this information in your profiles, right? Your in your title on LinkedIn, for instance, in your about section, et cetera, et cetera. And you are you're basically, the more you do that, the more people will find you. Just saying the word investor and having a clear thesis people will find you and then eventually your deal flow will begin to diversify as well because why you're telling people that you're an investor it also just attracts people to to you as well so i'll i'll pause there and just make sure i've answered your questions <laughs>
1: very very thoroughly thank you for that Bridget i think this is fantastic as you probably know uh, because it's how we met initially i was giving a presentation for the 4th floor which we're both part of that community community about building a personal brand, specifically leveraging LinkedIn, right? So I love what you just shared about the importance of attaching that investor status to your overall personal brand and thereby attracting investment opportunities i would love for you to elaborate a little bit more on that whole notion of creating deal flow as in being able to find companies that you can then consider investing in and ideally in a way that allows you to diversify your investment portfolio we already heard that you've invested in 150 startups to date which is incredible and uh, amazing um, diversification Um, Aside from LinkedIn and then investor or not investors, founders proactively reaching out to you after seeing that investor in your, in your bio, what are other opportunities to diversify your own deal flow?
0: Okay, so this is exciting. So once I started to learn the basics of what it meant to be an accredited investor, I did not even know I was accredited. <laughs> when uh, I, I was going to calls, again, I'm a member of various communities, including the fourth floors, as you just mentioned, and many other spaces. And I just started going to investor calls and Zoom calls and meetups and things like that just to listen. I would say nothing. I'm, I was always on mute. And if you know me, you know that's that's unusual. So (laughs) I didn't, I didn't know what was, I didn't understand I was learning. And so I just muted myself and I was listening, taking notes and paying attention. So the key to understand and find diverse deal flow is to one, find spaces where they're talking about investing and you do not, I'm a very, very frugal person. You do not have to join and pay memberships if you can't, if you cannot afford it. So for instance, say you're a college student or MBA, undergrad, what have you, or you have a community business incubator in your community or things of that nature. Accelerators for startups are also another good source because they have usually free workshops and things on investing. So the point is find spaces where you can Listen and learn about investing. And so for me, it was again circles that I I was already a member of. And I just found that they had groups for investing. So I listened and learned. I was so confused. They were using so many terms, so much, so many acronyms. And they don't slow down for you, by the way, if you're on the call. They don't slow down at all. They talk so fast. And I was taking so many notes afterwards, I would have to go and research every little word that they said so I could connect all the dots. So the first thing is find the spaces where you can learn and at no cost, they're available, they're out there, do your, do some research and you will, they, you will find them. And then once you get comfortable, um, you'll realize that deal flow, because deal flow comes from so many sources. So it's like going to a fruit stand at, at the local grocery store there. If you, where I live here in California, I didn't realize there were various kinds of cherries until I moved here. Like I only thought there was one type of cherry at the grocery store, but here they have multiple types of cherries at the grocery store and uh, they have multiple uh, types of apples. There's multiple of, you know, all these fruits and vegetables. And that's what deal flow is like. There is no one type, uh, one source for deal flow. Deal flow comes from so many different sources. So there's free sources. I believe AngelList is still free. So you can go to AngelList and log in. They'll you know become a member. I believe it's free. And then you'll start to see automatic emails come to you with opportunities to invest in startups. The key is And what you should know is as soon as you sign up for all of these different newsletters and communities that talk about investing, your inbox will be overflowing, overflowing with deal flow. And so it's up to you to have a very clear thesis. That's why we talked about thesis earlier, because it will help you filter out all that noise so that you can only click and and read about and, you know, search the companies and the startup potentials that you're interested in that fit your thesis, Uh, because you will be flooded. It won't take you long at all. It'll take, if you did, if you spent a day, let's say, researching communities uh, in your area that, that focus on investing, whether they're virtual or in your, you know, in your in your immediate ecosystem. Either way, there's an abundance. And then when you sign up for their newsletters, you sign up to go to a free, to sit and watch a, a pitch competition or pitch day, demo day, they're called, et cetera. And you may not know anything. You're gonna be a fly on the wall, but that's okay. That's how you start. The more familiar you get with the vocabulary, how the ebb and the flow of how these conversations go, the Q&As that are asked, et cetera, et cetera. And then you begin to get more comfortable and more comfortable So deal flow is literally all over. It's everywhere around you, whether you know it or not. Now, the other thing to realize is all of that deal flow. What does it mean for you as an investor? Well, say you have 100 emails that come in as you sign up for newsletters and circles in your area or virtual circles that talk about investing. And now you get all this influx. So you get, say, 100 different sources for deal flow. And out of all those 100 sources, you may come across, say, 25 pitch decks that match your thesis. And out of those 25, unless you have a lot of money, you probably are not going to invest in all 25 startups. The data shows that investors who are wise, who have a thesis, who who are diligent with how to how to assess whether the deal is a good deal or not and we'll talk about due diligence shortly the funnel it starts wide like this and it goes in and then you end up only investing in about one percent of the deals that matches your thesis matches your budget passes all of the uh, criteria for due diligence and risk assessment etc one percent of those deals actually get financed so that means for you, if 100 come your way and it's filtered down, filtered down, you'll probably invest in one, right? So, so keep that in mind. The funnel is so wide, the spigot the, is like Niagara Falls, but you only need a cup. <laughs> you only need a cup of all of that water. It, it it's a, it's a really exciting uh, funnel to be a part of because you get to see so much um, innovation coming your way and so many opportunities that come your way. But in reality, based on your budget, based on your thesis, and where you are overall, one percent is the is the number that even the big big investors, the big companies, one percent of what they see is what they invest in.
1: Yeah. Mm. Love that. Thank you for sharing some very tangible advice there. We do have to wrap it up very, very shortly, but I did want to briefly touch upon the due diligence because that's also one of those terms that gets thrown around in the world of finance and investing very frequently. But again, many of our listeners are still quite new to the world of angel investing and venture capital. What does doing due diligence mean? Means and do you have a couple of questions or things to look out for as you're being flooded with all of these decks and emails uh, that successful investors should look out for, the types of questions that they should ask? Mm,
0: Sure. When I started two years ago, I was looking for the questions. That I should ask in these rooms and spaces, I would hear people ask questions and I was like, wow, they sound so smart. I would never have thought of asking that question. And so I said, Wow, there must be a list somewhere because investing in startups is not a new thing. It's been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I dug and dug and I found that one list anywhere. It's not even available on Chat GPT. The most experienced investors didn't even have a curated list of questions that they were asking. And I thought, well, are they just not being transparent? They don't want to share with me or they really don't, there is no list. And what I learned is most investors don't really have a list of questions. So I created my own list of questions just based on being a fly on the wall. Every time somebody asked a question, I typed it into my little list. Somebody else asked a question, I typed it into my list. I now have a curated list of all the questions to ask around product, around go-to-market strategy, around exit potential, um, advisors, team, team construct, you name it. I've got a whole list of questions. I use that now as the, the first level of vetting, whether a deal is a good high risk, low risk based on my questions. And and my questions are pretty standard. I mean, any startup that comes across your way or any deck that comes your way, you can look at the list of questions and Regardless, industry agnostic, you can just ask the questions and and get and listen to the answer. And then you'll begin to understand whether or not it's, if it's a deal that you're interested in or not interested in based on the, the founders um, answer or based on the deck itself. So at the end of the day, questions are critical and happy to share the list of questions that I've curated. The other part is after you evaluate the deck and listened to the pitch and made an initial, you're initially interested. Again, you're only going to invest in about 1% of what comes what comes your way. So after you've done that initial due diligence, the deeper due diligence is what people often talk about as whether or not to truly write a check, send a wire or send an ACH or not. The, the real due diligence is when you, there's a group of people who get together. Say there's a startup that m- multiple people have expressed interest in, it's past the initial criteria or requirements. Well, the next stage is that uh, a small group of people, maybe five or so people get together and they divvy up the work and they begin to evaluate the information in the deck. And that was shared by the, by the founder in greater detail. So that includes looking at the financials in greater detail. That literally means the founder provides and opens up their accounting books and stuff to make sure that what they have in the deck and what they say that their forecast or projections are truly are in alignment with what you know the data shows in their own records. They also assess the valuation of the company, for instance. So if a founder says their company is valued at $30 million, what is that based on? Is it so in due diligence, there is a formula and a a structure on how to assess the valuation based on the market conditions, based on the sales and revenue generated and the future generated um, revenue or expected revenue in the the future. So we look at a number of different things. Uh, We look at if there's debt on the balance sheet or not, again, those are the financial numbers, market opportunity, et cetera. So there's a number of things that as a first time investor or new investor, I would strongly recommend, again, you just be a fly on the wall. Just join a due diligence group, an investor committee of due diligence where you can actually just listen and learn. And then you do it once or twice or three times, and then you'll get the ebb and the flow of it all. And realize, number one, the best way to reduce your risk when you're a new investor or even a seasoned investor is to invest as a group. Right, a group. So that's an angel group. That's if you invest in a fund, that would be another way to reduce your risk. I talked about that venture funds earlier. So anyway, um, due diligence is always, always a part of the life cycle of whether you choose to invest or not. And if you do it individually, you're probably it's not going to be as thorough of a deep dive, rather than if you do it as a group. So that's what due diligence is, and that's the value. It's all about reducing your risk, and many times after a due diligence process is complete, the team may say, and and they'll do a deal memo. A deal memo is just a one pager that says, or two pager that kind of breaks down what they found. And then they share it out with other investors. And then those investors then make a decision whether to invest or not. So many times after due diligence is done, people may say, I'm going to, pass on this one, or others may say they're interested. So due diligence is a way of pulling back the sheets and figuring out what's really going on. And then if you, you know, like what you see in your research, then you make decisions based on that.
1: So, so insightful. And we could probably have a whole separate podcast (laughs) episode on the topic of due diligence itself. This was Amazing, Bridget. Thank you so, so much. I know this is going to be so, so valuable to our listeners, especially new investors or people who are thinking about becoming angel and startup investors in the future. So thank you so much. We'll make sure to link to all of the incredible resources in our show notes. Thank you for all the amazing work that you do educating people, but also, you know, moving the needle by making investments in social impact Companies and founders. So excited for our audience to listen to this very soon.
0: Well, I'm excited as well. I really, really hope that folks who have listened and watched and picked up a few tips here and there share what you liked the best out of this conversation. It's always helpful for me to know what their takeaways were and what they would like to learn more about. And then from there, I just create a program or workshop or something and we dive into that. Uh, Because again, this is not unobtainable it is obtainable Uh, again if i was in my 20s and 30s i wish somebody had even told me remotely about this asset class because i would be so much further along now and so if you can invest in real estate yes of course you can invest in your 401k people always say put money away and and your employer will match it or in most cases and then the the uh, individual retirement accounts but uh, unless somebody introduces you to other ways to grow and to create wealth for you and your family and your future family, you have no idea that it exists. So that's what we're doing. We're empowering the listeners and viewers here to think outside of their traditional boxes and to explore investing in companies that could use your capital. But at the same time, we want to help you make good decisions as well. Absolutely.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Bridget. This was incredible. Hey there, not so fast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you've listened in from today. Reviews are a podcaster's most important currency. It helps me create visibility for the incredible women who join me on the show. And if you've made it this far, I'd like to believe that supporting women is one of your favorite pastimes. If you already left a review, first of all, thank you. But why not share this episode with a friend or post it to your Instagram story? Thank you for helping me on my mission to make women rich by making women rich.